Hi, and welcome to the Team Deacons podcast. This podcast is a dialogue between Roger and James Deacons, joined by Matt Wyman, starting from a submitted question and ending who knows where. We're also joined by guests on occasion. We're connecting through Zoom, so bear that in mind when you hear the audio. If you'd like to submit a question, please do so by emailing pod, P-O-D, at rogerdeacons.com. Today's episode is Animation Part 3. We started with an episode where Roger and I discussed our involvement in animated projects. We then had a great conversation with the heads of layout and lighting on our current project. And today, we have a special treat. Joining us is an animation director with whom we've worked three times. He's a three-time Oscar nominee, a brilliant writer as well as a director, and has also directed live action. You'll know him best by the movies Lilo and Stitch and the three How to Train Your Dragon movies. We're very pleased to welcome Dean Dubois today. Thank you very much. and so <laughs> proud to be here. Very honored. Dean, we have so much to talk about, but I'd like to start with a little bit about your history. How did you get into animation? Did you know as a lad you wanted to work in animation? I could always draw. And I was fascinated by comic books. And that's really where I learned to draw. I loved the storytelling. I loved the world building. And I loved the dynamic compositions. That was really exciting to me. So the idea of creating my own story and characters, and then being able to lay them out um, in, in comic book form was always really appealing to me. I used to make my own comic books and even got to meet a few of my heroes at a local comic conventions. But when it came time to pursuing a career, I, I didn't know how to connect those dots. Marvel and DC and Manhattan and me and Elmer Quebec, it just didn't seem um, viable. So I looked around and the closest thing I could find was an animation program being taught a summer school at Sheridan College just outside of Toronto. And I decided to give it a shot. And what I found out was it, it was everything that I loved about comic books brought to life and for a world audience. And so uh, I yeah, had an aptitude for it and, and I threw myself into it and got hired out of school to go work for Don Bluth in Ireland. He's a, an ex-Disney vet who had started his own studio along with the help of Steven Spielberg. And they made films like um, An American Tale, Land Before Time. All Dogs Go to Heaven. The Secret of Nim was their first feature film. And it's where I went to kind of cut my teeth and work with some very talented people um, that all prepared me to get hired at the Disney Studios. So did you start working by drawing? Was that your first job, drawing things? Yes, yes. I was a, a background designer. Um, they call it oh. layout. And that mm -hmm. was that was my job. I would design up the backgrounds for for the characters to be placed against. Uh, that would be l later painted by background artists, background painters. And it was, um, yeah, it was a great way to, to not only refine my drawing ability, but to learn about, further learn about composition and directing the eye and where to place characters in a frame and follow them through camera movement. Uh, later, I started doing character designs. And finally, before I left the Don Bluth studio, I became his storyboard assistant. And so that was that's really where it all came together for me because I felt like I was I was able to direct my own little mini parts of the film. And when I joined the Walt Disney Studios, that's what I that's what I wanted to be part of and I found myself in the story department. So you find the story department 
has the best of both because it's the story, because obviously as a writer, you like stories and it's also the drawing and creating the environments. Yeah. What I, what I quickly realized, especially at the Don Bluth studio and, and it continued throughout my early career was that the, the writers that they found themselves working with were not very, were not very good. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, it always felt like the stories were lacking and it made me very curious about story. I'd never studied writing, but I threw myself into that as well. And I, I went to go take a Robert McKee weekend workshop in London that opened my eyes and started reading every book I could find on it and started refining my own stories. And I realized that that was really where the dearth was in animation. So if I could be a storyboard artist, it gave me the, the chance, the opportunity to really uh, visualize a lot of the storytelling instincts that I had, but at the same time, just really work on character and, and story arcs and, and as much as I could use that off time to begin to write my own material. And did you find that by writing Lilo and Stitch that gave you the sort of the tool to be able to say to them, well, yeah, you can have this if I can direct it? Chris Sanders and I were partnered together on Lilo and Stitch to direct it, uh, but they they kept telling us that they were going to hire real writers at some point. We were largely left alone because that film was made in Florida. By the time that they realized how far the film had gone and how singular its voice was, they dropped the idea of bringing a professional into the mix and we became screenwriters as a result of it. That's great. Mm -hmm. That's great. And then right after Lilo and Stitch, what did you do? I had a hopper of ideas, about 20 ideas that I had been working on, and most of them were live action in my mind. So I thought it was a good opportunity to see whether or not anyone in the town would be interested in these ideas. So I put together pitch packages for a few of them, uh, got an agent and went around and pitched, and I sold three of them. So for eight years, I worked on multiple drafts, um, and each project unfortunately fell to the same demise, which was there was a change in presidency at both the Walt <laughs> Disney Studios and then at Universal Studios. So the president who had bought my projects was ousted, replaced by somebody who wanted to clear the slate and follow their sensibilities. And so... That's so a true was, Hollywood story. <laughs> it, it was it was eight years. I wouldn't say it was wasted, but I, I learned I learned a lot. I mean, w one film had a start date. We had our cinematographer oh. and production designer and art director, and uh, we were going after our cast. We had locations set in. You know, we were going to be shooting in in Ireland on location on the west coast in Dingle, and then the Ardmore Studios, just outside of Dublin. I mean, it was it had an approved budget. We were um, we were so close, and then it all uh. it all kind of fell apart with uh, with the departure of Nina Jacobson. Dean, were you also uh, attached to direct those? Yes, I was. I was writing to direct them, and uh, that was going to be my directorial debut in live action. But after after eight floundering years, uh, I I got a <laughs> kind of a rescue call from my old cohort, Chris Sanders, uh, the guy that I had written and directed Lilo and Stitch with. And he said, listen, I'm over at DreamWorks and they've thrown me this project called How to Train Your Dragon. It's two years into its uh, production and it has a fixed release date 15 months from now, but they need a page one reconceive. Would you jump onto it with me? So we, uh, I found myself that Monday morning uh, sitting at a conference table with Jeffrey Katzenberg telling us what he wanted and, and how 
their various attempts to faithfully adapt the book upon which it was based was was you know leading nowhere. So yeah, we we were given three mandates. He said, "I want a father and son story and a big David and Goliath ending, and a Harry Potter tone," and that was it. <laughs> but it's interesting because that material had a certain amount of darkness to it. I mean, the kid loses his leg. That's not good. And his father. So did you have to struggle? Because I find a lot of times with animation, because it started out as cartoons for children, they do have this thing of let's not upset our audience. But um, the thing about How to Train Your Dragon was because it did go into a different area and story. And I think it, it was really wonderful. But did you have to struggle to get to keep those elements? It was always a struggle, but that was that was our sensibility. And we, I think I always come to projects, even if they're animated with a, a live action sensibility. That's the way I write the screenplay. Yeah, it, it doesn't interest me to play it light all of the time. And of course, Hiccup losing his leg or losing his father, a lot of the, the grittier story elements of the films are not in the books. And that was something we brought to the mix, but it was something we wanted to create a world that had consequence to it. And that was a, mm. a, a large part of why we approached yourself and, and Roger to come into the mix. Do you um, think it's in animation? Is it an advantage to be to write the script as well as direct it? And is that the way it normally is that the people who are directing are writing? I don't know if it's normally that way. And I know that there are mm -hmm. some writer directors like Brad Bird and a few others. I I don't see any other way, to be honest, because as a storyboard artist, I would tend to set aside the script pages I was given and reinvent them, try to make them better. Yeah. But um, for me, because I don't have as much time to storyboard, writing is my means of visualizing the ideas so that I can communicate them to other people. If I'm not writing it, if I'm simply reinterpreting somebody else's screenplay, then I feel less invested in it. I have less confidence and I feel an overall lack of um, authorship <laughs> over the material. What's the kind of difference working on, on the How to Train a Dragon series than, than what you were going to do live action-wise, the film you were going to do in Ireland? Is that a big change, big shift for you? It wasn't. Uh, I think the film that I was going to make in Ireland was intended to be a broad audience family film. It was a ghost story set during the, the Great Famine. So it has dark elements to it, but ultimately it's a very wish-fulfilling story of a young lad who's escaped from a workhouse and he impersonates everything that the, the people of the towns are terrified of, be it witches, banshees, fairy folk. But into <laughs> his life comes an actual ghost from, um, from a famine ship that had wrecked upon the shores. And she's in this desperate bind between the world of the living and the world of the dead trying to find her father and having nowhere to turn. And so she turns to this charlatan who claims to know everything about anything otherworldly. And uh, it becomes this sort of African queen-like contentious relationship where he attempts to get her to the other side if she'll scratch his back and help him make a few big robberies. And in the process, he falls in love with her. And it becomes a story of first loss First love and first loss. Uh, he jeopardizes her opportunity to move on to the hereafter out of need to keep her close. And it, it becomes a, a, transform, a transformational story that changes his world forever. It's about a ghost teaching a, a, living, a living lad how to, how to truly live. 
This sounds good. I, I want to see this movie. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> why, um, why now? Would you would you ever consider doing that as an animated film, or would you ever consider going back to try and get it together as live action? I think with what we accomplished on the Dragon films together, it 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 so straddles the line between live yeah. action and animation in terms of its sensibility and look that yeah. I absolutely do think it could be done in animation. It's, it's just unfortunately it's one of those projects that's held up with a huge price tag against it. So oh, because uh, <laughs> the development money's already been put into it. So yes, yeah. It comes with a lead lead it, weight around its neck. It yeah. does. It does. Oh boy. Oh boy. I hate yeah. those. I, I know a couple of those. Yeah. You know, there's there's a trouble. There's some wonderful projects out there, but they come with like five or ten or fifty million dollar kind of dead yeah. weight around yeah. them, don't yeah. they? Yes. You never get them together. I mean, the thing about the, the How to Train Your Dragon series is it did seem to kind of reach a wider audience than most animated films. I mean, there's yes. some animated films like uh, Wolves with Basia that's only going to have an adult audience, but that's a specific thing. Most of the American Hollywood movies are really geared towards, you know, um, young kids really, aren't they? Or teenagers at the most, but... Um, the How to Train Your Dragon series seem to have a much wider audience. Do you think that's a possibility with animation to come? I do think it's a possibility because those the I think recently the films that pander to just a very young audience don't seem to do as well. Yeah. And it's those those films like like most of the Pixar films that try to reach for something that's a bit more um, in terms of its themes. It it, yeah. it it not only entertains a young audience, but it's it's speaking to something much more mature on screen simultaneously. And that becomes, I think, the greater aspiration throughout the industry at the moment. It does seem to uh -huh. right. it does seem to uh reward the studios for, for taking a few risks and trying to do something right. that's different and truly universal, something truly speaking to the older demographic as well. And it's also kind of fun because with the tools of animation, you can go to places sometimes that you can't in um, in live action. Yeah, I mean, we I think we've realized by the end of How to Train Your Dragon three that there was the all of the restrictions that had previously held us back or caused us to rethink our ambition were lifted, and the technology is advanced in such a way that if you can dream it up and communicate it to a crew, it's it is plausible. It may be expensive, may require a lot of time, but we no longer have to resort to to matte paintings and scaling back the numbers of characters on screen or or just dialing back scope and ambition because it, it yeah. can be done. Each one of those departments have have excelled and something like the hidden world as a space even in Dragon Two, would have had to have been matte paintings, and we had we would have had yeah. to restrict our 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 camera yeah. paths uh, and restrict the numbers of dragons that were filling the space. But it yeah. was yeah, it was amazing the difference between the how the first one and the third one, the difference in the technology and as you say the the ambition. You think, wow, I mean, what what could be done? It was amazing change. I suppose I, it was a few years. I, I think. <laughs> Though also too that with, though with the change of technology you have to be careful because yes you can see every detail and every leaf in the forest but you wouldn't if you were shooting that live action so it kind of it, it draws you out a bit so you have to be careful just because you can do all these things maybe you shouldn't 
Yeah, I think that's the greatest lesson that that Roger imparted upon the crew. <laughs> He's a good naysayer, yes. <laughs> not, not, not so much naysayer, but he would often question whether it was in the design of the shots um, and their movement. Um, he would often say, okay, you know, that's it's nice, it's a bit showy, but whose point of view are you following and how is it advancing the story? And it was always a, a reminder, even with the lighting, sure, you can see into every shadow and see every detail, but do you want to? And, and it, it's... I, I, what I took away from it was just the, the discipline of restraint. Uh, we do have the ability to show and do anything in animation, but it, it actually works against us because it, it takes the audience out or it stops them from believing in the world that we're trying to conjure. Yeah. And, yeah. and so I think well, by yeah. imparting some, some restrictions, some real world sensibilities, it actually makes the, the characters in the world feel real. Yeah, yes. I mean, I think, I mean, I bring that from live action because you see so many live action films yeah. now because the technology is so amazing. You can do anything with a camera, like you can do a film in one take, ha, ha, ha. But I mean, you, <laughs> don't, we know that. you, don't, you don't necessarily want to do that on every film. You know, it's, it's right in, its, in certain circumstances. Like we were talking to a Young Duck yesterday, you know, remember from DreamWorks. Yes, and we were talking about how on Crudes, so much of that was... Um, almost like a, a cinema verite sort of, you know, a, a documentary kind of long takes, moving cameras, observational almost in a sense, um, which is like the antithesis of some of Dragon, really, you know, where you're, you're thinking of things much more in composed shots and letting things play in frames at times, you know, and you're varying it a lot, you know. And I think the movement, just because you can do it doesn't mean to say you should, does it? You know. I think Young Duck did it to uh, to an extreme, but we also tried in Dragon to suggest that there was an operator behind the camera, so yes. little bumps and overshoots and and jostles yes. of the camera yeah. helped to yeah. um, to remove the 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 kind of glassy perfection of. Yes. of computer camera moves and yes <laughs> there is a certain language isn't there you know that in the camera that's the thing so if you like introduce that kind of language from live action into animation it, it's strange you do get a sense of uh heightened reality yeah and since you did three a trilogy of uh, How to Train Your Dragon. And since, as we have certainly found out on our other episodes, how long these projects are, was it a big challenge? Because you did one and then it was going to be years later when two came out and you had to maintain that same feeling. How did you deal with that? Well, it was, it was twofold. I really loved the crew and I loved the cast and the idea of continuing to work with them was exciting to me, but I also recognized how much of a, a time investment it was going to be. <laughs> uh, I, I briefly looked around after How to Train Your Dragon, the first film, to see what live action opportunities might be sitting out there, and they weren't great. So I thought, well, maybe if I continue with Dragon 2 and 3 and direct those solo, I, I might have a you know a, a more significant body of work and maybe more clout and... Mm -hmm. and relevance to get live action projects off the ground when I was finished. But I knew it would be a decade commitment at that point. You keep talking about live action and seeing that you come from an animated background and come from comics. 
what are the differences that you see in your role as a director? And is it something that would scare you when you think there'd be a learning curve and say, wow, you know, I really want to do this live action thing, but there's going to be a ramp up time between what I've known and done in animation and may have to get used to in a live action film. I think that's exactly why I'm excited by it because I'm, I'm fearful of it. I love to be thrown in the deep end and I love to learn new things. Uh, and there's just something about the idea of live action film working with actors' performances, working with um, the the opportunities presented on the day by the sets and the ideas that would be coming from the crew. And the immediacy of it is is really appealing to me. I'm, I know a lot of people that stand around on live action sense, uh, sets kind of talk about the drudgery of of everything being set up and taken down, but it's nothing compared to <laughs> the years invested, <laughs> nothing. The, the, the glacial pace of animation. Um, and lastly, I think it's just, uh, th- there is the reach of the audience uh, is promises more in terms of my sensibilities with a live action film than often animated movies do like, like, like it or not. And though it's changing, Animated films are always relegated to the kiddie table. They're almost dismissed as children's entertainment out of the gate. And uh, it's an itch I've been wanting to scratch for a while, I think. But it's all dependent on the material. And like I said, most of my stories lend themselves more toward live action than they do animation. I also, I've heard stories of um, animated directors going into live action and on their first feature shooting a scene and not really liking it and going, oh, well, we'll just redo this because you can, <laughs> you know, you, you don't have that today's the day and that's it. And having to deal with that, um, which does bring a lot of pressure on the set, but also a lot of adrenaline and excitement yeah. of this is what it's going to be. Yeah. I mean, that's what I love about live action. I mean, you know, it's really interesting working on animation, but the time scale, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it full time as a career. I couldn't. I love the live action thing. That it, I mean, it really is scary sometimes. You yeah. know, you've got half an hour, the lights going in. You've got to get a long, complicated take in, or, or you, you know, you're behind schedule, and, and I just love it. It's kind of interesting. It's kind of like the difference between prep and actually shooting. Because in prep, as you get towards the end of the prep, it it just will drive you crazy because you keep going over the same thing over and over. Well, what if this happens? What if that happens? What what do we do then? And you're just repeating and repeating because you have the time. Yeah. But then when you're shooting, you're just doing you it. You can't, yeah. And so yeah. we could have done it this way, but we didn't. So this is the yeah. way it is. And, and just the, to, to be on a set and then actually have the confidence to change your mind. And whether that is the yes. director or myself wow. as a cameraman and say, I mean, I've, couple of times a couple of times out of 60 years turned to the director and said i've got to start again you know i want to start again because i can do this much better but i can do it within schedule you know but that's i i kind of love that i love that sort of making those choices yeah it, it's amazing and there's an there is a decisive immediacy to all of it and yeah. like it or not you have to live with it and yeah i mean i've had I have little experiences i've shot music videos and um i've done some concert documentary work and and there is that sense of immediacy as well but there's also the great thrill of getting your footage back and just seeing what you accomplished and is uh yeah i I love that immediacy 
animation you have to wait you know you have to wait for a year and a half before you see a finished frame of anything <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. and yeah. it's not yeah. to put it down i love it as an art form and i think it's really yeah. beautiful and timeless and i would never turn my back on it i just wanted yeah. to expand the toolbox yeah yeah exactly yeah and there's something about having limitations that creates uh, i don't know that you find a solution that you didn't think you had you wouldn't, if you had no limitations, you would have gone down the easy route perhaps, but with limitations, you have to find that solution. And the solution is usually even better than you thought. So yeah, yeah. if that yeah. makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it does. It does. <laughs> and there's an energy, there's an energy to that collective group. Everybody's yes. working within their discipline, but they're all part of the whole and they're all contributing ideas and it's yeah, and they're a, all focused on that moment. Yes. You know, yes. They're all focused on capturing that one special moment on that one short piece of film. Of course, it's now digital, but same it's thing. the same, same idea that you're focusing on this one little performance take creation of a moment. Of, it, 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 yeah. Do you think that an animation director going into live action actually has an advantage when it comes to visual effects because you've spent so much time with computer graphics and seeing what happens if you push it too far or too little that you might come into it with a little more experience in that area? I think in that area, yes. Uh, there's a familiarity with, with the craft of creating what isn't there and knowing <laughs> the limitations of of what you can create is is also an, an advantage i think some directors that are not as familiar with digital creation is they, they might come into it thinking or expecting more than can actually be accomplished or not recognize the cost and and time and labor that will go into creating that thing but uh, on the other side it, it does you know just based on the history of animation directors moving into live action they also come in with a sense of um of ease that they can always go back and rework a moment, you know, take it back to storyboard and, and reconceive it as we often do in animation yes. well into production. And, and so that, uh, that sense of, of preparedness of having a really solid script and a really solid plan in terms of storyboards and shot lists and, you know, really walking through the location with the location scout and, and knowing what, um, is feasible and, and how long it will take to shoot it. I, I'm aware that I have to be super prepared on that level because it is, um, it's just so much more malleable in animation. Yeah. And that's actually a good thing because I think oftentimes a lot of productions don't have that kind of prep. They're all different kinds of uh, productions and some sort of make it up on the day, but I always like it when they have addressed these things ahead of time and we have this game plan, even though it might change. Yeah, the way. So, I mean, if you, you need a plan, you can mm -hmm. always throw it away, but you, mm -hmm. if you haven't got a plan, then sometimes you can really come unstuck. Yeah, I think that's a, that, that's a general, generally for me in my career, it's always been the way to approach it is walk into a room with a solid idea, one that you've really considered, and then be open to it, its embellishment, be, be open to new ideas that might take it in a direction that's less cliche, a little more surprising, something that um, that you might not have considered, but is so much better. I think that same attitude should carry forward uh, onto a live action set as well. There are a lot of people who've been doing this for a long time who might have some really great ideas on how to make something better. But I wouldn't walk onto a set 
and just turn to Roger or anyone else and just say, okay, so what do we do? <laughs> it, it, I, would, I, I, would, I would have to feel somewhat prepared, whether it's through storyboards or just having really thought through the pages that we're planning to shoot. Yeah, because even if that's just a talking point, that's the thing. That, that's, that, that, that's what you want. I mean, it's not, I don't feel, I mean, I always come on set with an idea, but I'm not necessarily, I'm not attached to it in any sense. It's just as a talking point with a director and I might come on the set and the director's got a different idea and I, and then we might find a third idea that is not what either of us expected or an actor might come up with something or you look at the set and go, oh, well, this is obvious. We do this, you know, which is very much how we work with Denny actually, isn't it? Yeah. And I, I do think that the value of prep and everything is to not only figure out how you're going to shoot it or what locations, but also to really know the scenes and to know this scene is important because it's the first time we realize that somebody blah, blah, blah. And so because you've got that in your mind, if you change things on the day in the back of your mind, you're remembering, but what we need to convey in the scene, because this is why it's important, is the first time we see whatever. So I think the more that you know the purpose of each scene, the more you can be more flexible on the day because you're not going to lose the point of the scene because on the day there's so much pressure and there's so much going on that sometimes you're just trying to get it in the can and it's important to remember why that scene is there to begin with. And as a writer, you really know that. <laughs> Because you put it there. There's so many times I think on on <laughs> on, a, on a on a live action set you might you you might be doing a, a scene with like I don't know a thousand extras or something that's be extreme, um, but actually the scene is about one character standing there and those people are just background to what is happening in his head, and there's such a danger of going on a set as like. I've got all these extras. I've got this great big set. I've got, oh, it's such a day. Let's get 20 cameras. But really what you need is a close-up of that character with all those people moving about in the background, but they're not really important. You know what I mean? And, and I think the fact that you write and direct, you know that's what the crucial element is of that scene, what you've written. Uh, and, and that's... That's what I think in prep anyway, that it's, it's, you've got a sense of the, the, the crucial part of the, the moment because just the, the stress of doing live action and the sort of production and producers kind of pressure on the day and filming everything they've spent the money on, can you take you away from actually what's important in the scene? I, I think that's what's so important about having um, a, a collaborator like yourself on the production because I get as dazzled by the extras and, and the toys as anyone else, I could, I could be easily persuaded to indulge. Um, and, and oftentimes we have people above us who want certain things. I, I remember very clearly on How to Train Your Dragon, the first film, it had been the tradition to light everything in such a way that you saw every detail, every prop that had been... Um, had been exhaustively designed, uh, the cost money um, that was used to dress the set needed to be lit uh, with, with candy colors and gloss. And, <laughs> and here comes Roger, who had 
cast iron tire. If you remember, <laughs> if you remember Hiccup's workshop, he had. I do, yeah. He said, let's just use let's just use the the candlelight as practical lights within the shot and let let it fall off into black, and not not he made just a few not just darkness rudge. but black. <laughs> it's black. Yeah, the production <laughs> and, uh, designer and the animators weren't so happy. We were well, no, we were all nervous because we had yeah. we had heard so many times from from Jeffrey Katzenberg that. You know, if he was paying for it, he wanted to see it. Uh, so we, yeah. we made sure to have Roger in the room the first time that we had debuted <laughs> the lighting of that particular sequence. Yeah, right. Uh, and he, he sat strategically sat right beside Jeffrey, and it was um, it was great because it really opened a door for something that we hadn't done, yeah. and really no one had done at that point because yeah. that was prior yeah. to you collaborating with Gore Verbitsky on Rango. So there was really no, yes, yeah. you know, aside from aside from that first act of Wally, and I know that you yes. had quite a bit of influence on that from the uh, the workshops you did up at Pixar. Yeah, I hadn't seen anything in animation, CG animation, that had that kind of uh, grit or or sense of naturalism to it. It it really gave it emotional heft, and um, it was very different for our studio. And it became a defining look for the trilogy. But I wouldn't have had the guts to go there, honestly, had you not been there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you needed you a whipping boy. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, we, that is the fun of it, though, isn't it? That's the fun of it. It's also the scary part, like, we, like we're saying about live action. You make that decision on the set, you know. I mean, the number of times when I was shooting film and said to the director, okay, um, you mind if I play this in silhouette? You know what I mean? But what's a silhouette and then you don't the director doesn't really see what you mean by silhouette until they watch the dailies you know, back the in the days day. of film yeah <laughs> don't have that so, problem now but yeah. i mean that's 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 the joy of it you know is to, to to push to, it a little to bit to push yeah. it stretch it use all the possibilities mm -hmm. yeah yeah i don't know i mean yeah. maybe it might be uh interesting for your listeners to know why we asked roger to come in for that pitch in the first place and it's because Chris Sanders and I had come from a hand-drawn animation background. And in that process, there is always a step before you go into production where you create a, a workbook drawing, which is really a single frame for every shot of the movie that shows where the light and shadow and composition is going to play out. Just a, you know, a, a graphite pencil drawing. But everybody had a sense of, okay, this is what the background the painted background is going to have to do in terms of light and shadow. This is how it's going to affect the colors of the characters and their position within the frame, even through the blocking of the shot. In CG animation, we quickly realize they don't have that step. And so early on, before animation begins, coming out of storyboards, they create virtual shots and they, they choose lenses, uh, they create camera movement, and they lock off the compositions months away from the very first lighting test. So we were both scratching our heads wondering how could you lock off a composition without knowing where the light and shadow is going to fall. It seemed really strange to us, but that was just the process. And we were learning very quickly, but we thought maybe it might be best to bring in somebody who has some experience and interest in this medium, someone that we all respect and whose who's lighting you know, speaks for himself and maybe do some talks with us in the vein of what Roger had done with Wally. And so we invited Roger into the mix and we pitched the movie. And um, to our great delight, he wanted to be part of the whole production as well as you, James. And so mm -hmm. it was a, 
it was a gift we didn't see coming because we thought we might get a couple of days of workshops out of it. And then we ended up getting your, your, sort of your, then I, you couldn't get rid of us, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it, it transformed the movie from start to finish. Mm. It wasn't just, um, it wasn't just represented in the first act, like in, in Wally is something mm. that went from, uh, the first frame to the last. And what it really did was marry those two departments that, that previously hadn't communicated a whole lot from the, mm -hmm. you know, mm. the, the, the camera department to the lighting department. And it became an overall discussion with, with the production designer and our visual effects supervisor. So it was, uh, it, it transformed the way that DreamWorks was producing their films. Uh, because we were new to CG animation, it's just the way that we learned yeah. to do it. But yeah. it was yeah. great because we had Roger in the beginning helping to select images that were inspiring in terms of mood and atmosphere, color, building boards that would surround an entire conference room um, to advising on storyboards and the, the previs shots, uh, the actual locked off compositions, lens choices, and then all the way through to the end with the final lighting and the DI. It was actually really great for us too to be in the entire process um, and really involved in the entire process because if you're going to do it, What's the point? Oh, that's what we said yeah. at the time. And yeah. if, if we're going to do it, let's do it. You know, uh, uh, yeah, we'd done done those short times on on Wally with mm -hmm. Pixar. I mean, frankly, we would have done more on Wally, but at that time we were off doing a live action shoot, so we only worked on the opening sequences. And it also was the very first time of this collaboration between animation and, and a live action mm. person. So everybody was trying to figure out how it would work because they were used to going off on their own and working on a scene and not necessarily bringing people in. So it was a real learning experience, I think. Yes, and then for the workflow. Then he getting the, the remote you know, the access to yeah. work on it remotely. So yeah. we yeah. could be away and come back and forth, yeah. you know. And that was all thanks yeah. to James, actually. Because uh, yeah. what James, you were great about maximizing Roger's input in the movie. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, not just dropping in every now and then, but actually making sure that he was constantly abreast of anything that was developing and changing. And so we had a mobile system set up for you while you were working on Skyfall or whatever yeah, other yeah. movie. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You could check on... Um, our progress as well, be it storyboards or shots that were coming in mm. fully lit, and and uh, yeah, it's it's I think a great testament to your dedication to make it to make it work. Even when you would schedule days to be there live and in person to make sure the days were full of of meetings for yourself and Roger to attend, because yeah. uh, it worked we, too well because they really jammed them in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I, I but don't think great. I don't think anyone would have had you not said wow. listen we're here mm -hmm. you know we've yeah. we've said yes we're part <laughs> of it so make make the most of it yeah it, it was really fun too because for me i had to really get to know the technical process which was so mind-boggling to me the way coming from live action the way it worked and to understand the steps each scenes went through and to make sure that we were in part of all of them mm -hmm. so it was fun you're making me feel quite nostalgic for that time at DreamWorks, actually. Because, I mean, I, we really enjoyed it. I mean, mm -hmm. I, it was it really was a dream. And, I mean, it was great. And but they also, served but, you lunch. And they served you lunch. <laughs> but, the, but, but the moment in the development of anim computer animation 
you know, the development of the technology and then having people like you kind of trying to stretch it with the kind of films you were making. I think it was a moment, you look back at that as a moment in film history that it, yeah. won't, it won't be like, it can't be like that again because, you know, the technology now has moved on. You've got Lion King or whatever you want. But, but I, I do hope that actually animation goes forward in pushing the envelope and yeah. doing things like line drawings or something really visual and fun and tells a story. So it needs a good story and a strong, not, not necessarily a child's uh, visual. It would be really fun. But what do you see? How do you see it? I mean, animation and live action and, and CG. And how do you see film, you know, um, how do you see, see film developing over the next 10 years or so? <laughs> Oh yeah, uh, big question. Right? <laughs> it oh, is yeah. a big question. I will say that I was I was quite inspired by the work that was done on uh, Spider Man into the Spider Verse because mm -hmm. they they took CG animation where it stood and applied it to a very graphic comic book sensibility in yeah. in a in a really dimensional, interesting way. And I thought that was very brave. They really took a risk and and they were rewarded for it. So I. I would say the challenge the challenge is out there. It's been met at least once or twice. And and um, knowing that we can do anything, we should really push ourselves. Steven Spielberg gave a talk over at DreamWorks recently, and he was saying, I would love to see DreamWorks take on something with a darker, more mature, creepier tone right. to it. And that's right. that's something I've been wanting to do forever. Um, yeah. But it, it's always been it's always been shied away from because it might be too niche or audiences might reject it. And these films are so expensive that they, they try to hedge their bets by making, making And they kind of, appeal. aren't they aiming for the young audience because they figure, oh, well, it's animation, so we'll get them in. So anything that might frighten them, they're not sure they'll get the adults in. Exactly. Exactly. They don't know that they'll get the adults and they may cause uh, parents to avoid taking their children to the films. But I grew up on some of those those creepy Disney films of the times like the uh, the Watcher in the Woods or Escape to Witch Mountain and I, I loved them you know I always loved mm -hmm. uh, a sense of peril and they weren't gratuitous and violent or bloody or terrifying but they had they had a, an atmosphere to them that was always really really appealing to me and definitely helped shape my my ambitions for telling stories so I would I would love to do that and I think there's room to as long as it doesn't, as long as it's not so off-putting that that families will avoid it, because there's there can be there can be fun spooky as well. <laughs> yeah, and it seems like it might be the smaller companies that would do that because the bigger companies have so much invested in a big payback mm -hmm. from the box office. Oh, that's a point. Do you think? I mean, you think small uh, animation's getting cheaper and cheaper, right? So, I mean, are the big companies like DreamWorks and Pixar, are they going to get more competition from smaller kind of companies that make animated films for half the money? And so far, it's not the case uh, hmm. because there is a there is a quality drop, and more importantly, they don't have the muscle of dis distribution behind them. You need that huge marketing machine and financial commitment of a big studio backing your movie to really reach the audiences that 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 Pixar and Disney and DreamWorks reach. And also a, a lot of the income too is on the toy sales, right? I mean, sometimes you're designing a character so it's a good 
doll later. In some cases, yeah. They, yeah. they actually have, I, I've been to a few presentations from people who are specialists in this field and they, they talk about films that are toyetic, you know, whether they, whether they have, <laughs> sounds bad, <laughs> whether they have kind of a wish fulfilling quality to it that they can see children wanting to play out with action figures and toys. Some don't and that's okay. And they just don't invest the money on that end. Don't expect mm -hmm. any kind of, any kind of, you know, massive windfall of money from the uh, consumer products. Dragon was one that they considered to be quite toyetic, and I think it has made a lot of money for the studio with its uh, with its toys and sets and dolls and everything else. Yeah, I remember um, POV, the production designer, said he had to meet with the toy people a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we it was fun actually, like very much uh, a boy's wish come true to sit around and and design potential toys with the makers. We spent <laughs> quite a few afternoons doing that. Well, it's funny. They also do that in um, some live action films too. They start talking about dolls and stuff like that, and you're you, you're only three days into the shoot, and you're going what? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm I'm equally as inspired by small films with micro budgets that that take a chance yes. and tell a really emotional story. And at the end of the day, the, the films that have changed me personally. Are are the types of movies I aspire to make, and mm -hmm. I'm talking about films like Boyhood or, or Dead Poets Society, where mm -hmm. my outlook was actually changed, where where I felt like I didn't want to watch the film again because I didn't want to dissect it. It just had such a right. a palpable, visceral impact on me, and mm -hmm. I would uh, I, I love the challenge of making a film for a big audience and and trying to make it successful for the studio. And there's something nice about the the wide fan base that the films like How to Train Your Dragon have gained, um, mm -hmm. but uh, I, I do think my my spirit is independent. I would like to, I would love to make small films that don't cost very much that take more of a risk. You kind of have to have an independent spirit if you want to create those kind of darker storylines, because the um, not really the favorite of big uh, you know budget movies. Yeah, exactly. They, <laughs> They don't cost much. They don't make much, but in general, but I'm glad they exist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And who actually found the material of How to Train Your Dragon? It, uh, there was a book fair, an Italian book fair, and mm -hmm. one of our development people, Chris Couser, I believe, found the book there mm -hmm. and um, made the deal and it, for, for DreamWorks to acquire the option. And it was, was it a series of three books? It, it is a series of 11 books, I believe, ah. maybe 12, written by Cressida mm -hmm. Cowell, mm -hmm. uh, who's uh, an eccentric, wonderful, very talented British author. And uh, we were really afraid to meet her because we changed so much about her story on the first film. And we were right. expecting a very stuffy sort of Angela Lansbury type that was going to toss her tea at us and throw her doilies. And uh, in fact, she was just this very eccentric uh, illustrator first, author second just ah. creative spirit and uh, I'm sure it was jarring to see how much had changed but she got behind it right away and, and realized that there was a great fandom for her books and now there would be uh, a fandom for this this offspring of her books this uh, this um, interpretation which you know that's how she sees it it's just uh, an, an artistic interpretation of a world she'd created and she's been a, a great support all along was she more involved in part two and three um, involved in the sense that I would send her early screenplays and we'd invite mm -hmm. her 
to see in progress screenings, mm-hmm. uh, invite her to be part of the the press afterward as well. But she's the type of person who she's quite bold and cheeky. And so I could <laughs> send her, um, I could send her an email about you know, a discussion or pressure I was under to change something. Um, and I, I knew that she always had my back and, and she often would stand up for the, the bolder idea. So I, I, oh, wow. I really appreciate that about her. Dean, bringing a life to story that was already something in the form of books, how is that process for you as a writer to bring that to a screenplay? Um, just talk about the challenges or what you do to make that into a movie. Well, adaptation, I, I think, is probably a very difficult thing to do. We we were given carte blanche to reinvent. <laughs> so we kept elements, uh, really broad elements like dragons and a, a Viking world <laughs> and a Viking chief who has an inept son who's determined to be like everyone else. A, a few things like that. Um, but largely the story was reinvented. Toothless, for example, in the books is a small talking dragon about the size of a, a chihuahua. <laughs> and it's about the adventure of this 10-year-old Viking who he selects as, as part of their rite, um, their, their tradition. Young Vikings go to select an egg. And from that egg, they raise a dragon to do tricks. And, and they do... They, they train them by yelling at them and berating them. And Hiccup is kind of a sensitive underdog uh, son of the chief who is a disappointment to everybody. But And the egg that he picks yields a very disappointing little dragon. But because he's <laughs> kind to it, it does tricks that far surpass anyone else's. And it's only until the very end that they're really put to the test when a hostile dragon comes to their shores. And it's Hiccup and his little dragon toothless that that uh, deal with the threat. It's a very different story and it's a very sweet story and, and very popular, uh, but they quickly realized that it didn't have the breadth and reach and scope that they needed for, for the investment they were putting into it. Was it always conceived as a three-parter? No, no. In fact, like I said, when Chris called me up, there were about 15 months left to release. Mm-hmm. So he just said, can you help me can you help me <laughs> jump into this? And it's going to be crazy, but we have to get to the finish line with something that that hopefully works. We weren't thinking about anything beyond that. It wasn't until the mm-hmm. film went out there as a success that I was asked to come up with ideas for a sequel. And I, I just have a general allergy to sequels because they feel um, they just lack purpose in general. Mm-hmm. They feel like cash grabs. And so I said, well, let's... There are unanswered questions within the story, like Hiccup's mother and and other elements. Why don't we craft a trilogy, a true three-part story, three acts of one coming of age? And mm-hmm. Hiccup will go from this inept character that no one believes into a Viking chief by the end of it, who's who's wise, uh, wise enough to cut the ties with the dragon that got him there. So it was it was designed at that point to be a coming of age, and that's that's really what inspired the idea of of uh, leaping ahead in terms of years within the character's life and meeting him five years later um, as a young man on the the cusp of adulthood, Mm -hmm. taking the story forward. And then they did do a television series, right? Yes. On How to Train Your Dragon? They did. Were you involved in that at all? I only, I met with the, uh, with the showrunners occasionally. We'd Mm -hmm. have dinner and they'd tell me what they were working on and I would tell them what I was doing just so that we weren't stepping on one another's toes. Mm-hmm. And because uh, that happened concurrently, it was yeah. And they would mm-hmm. fill the years between the movies. 
oh. uh, the character years between the movies. Mm-hmm. So the, the first few seasons of the television show occupied the space between How to Train Your Dragon 1 and 2. Um, oh. And then uh, the last, I think the last couple seasons occupied between 2 and 3. So hmm. that we would have hopefully a sense of consistency. Through. Mm-hmm. There were characters and villains uh, that were introduced in the series that never that are never mentioned in the in the films. Um, so that's, mm-hmm. so it's not entirely consistent in that sense. But mm-hmm. um, for the most part, we did we did our best to make sure that it felt like there was a unity to the whole. Mm-hmm. Dean, you obviously have quite an excellent grasp on story, and being a director, you use it through everything that you do. Um, something I think is a theme in Hollywood is looking at classics and like just the fundamentals of story. And you talked about Robert McKee too. Can you just talk about learning story and for directors or people who want to become directors, how do they get that better feel of the fundamentals of story? Well, in my personal experience and everybody comes, comes to it with a different opinion. I've, I've felt that uh, the more macro you can be with your story, the better. I spend a lot of time outlining with just a couple of pages so that uh, I know that every scene is a fundamental building block. And it often looks a little formulaic at that, at that stage. But I can use an example from How to Train Your Dragon as um, to illustrate my point. We had a board. We put together a board very early on that was based on on some of the beats in uh, a book called Save the Cat by Blake Snyder. He was a former screenwriter. He passed away, unfortunately, but uh, he was a friend of mine. And yeah, he, he had distilled a lot of a lot of story theory into something that was really practical and easy to use and fun and, and a good starting place. And it helped us build a, a new structure for a father-son story in How to Train Your Dragon. One of those beats was uh, Hiccup, the son, begins a double life by befriending the enemy, doing the exact opposite of what his father expects him to do. And there is a, a communion moment between the boy and the dragon in private. And we, for the longest time, that beat was just pinned up on the board as the Black Stallion moment. It was that, you know, Caleb Deschanel, <laughs> beautiful <laughs> photography of the of the boy and and the stallion on the beach after the shipwreck and how they come to trust one another and eventually ends with the boy riding the horse. That was, uh, like I said, for the longest time, just the black stallion moment. It sounded like the most generic ripoff beat of all. But in execution, uh, you know, we thought through it. We, th- we thought how we bring something fresh to this idea, this sort of fundamental building block of our story. And it became what is the most iconic moment of the movie and possibly the trilogy, which is that little dance that they do as they're drawing in the sand and finally come face to face and the first moment of contact. People cite that as the most poetic m- moment of certainly the first film and maybe the whole thing. Uh, and that came from the most generic place. So I think it's an execution. You know, there there are a lot of these building blocks that seem uh, a little stale and overused, but they are in many ways essential. So I, I would say uh, you know, my, my approach is always, how do I pull back? I learned a lesson from uh, John Lasseter when he was overseeing Disney in the early days, um, shortly after Disney bought Pixar. And he said, tell me your story in in the most generic terms. I don't want to know the world. I don't want to know any of the specifics. Just tell me your story. And it so that it could be told with robots in space or cavemen 
you know, or, or uh, brokers on Wall Street. It's, what, is, what is the base story? What's the, what's the transformation of your character? You know, where does he or she start and where does he or she end? And who are the characters that impact that journey? And at what stage? And, and so it's, it's the most macro view. And if that's solid, then you can go back in and dress it up with the details of your world and the specifics of your character. And the more specific and original you can get at that stage, the more it will feel unique, if that makes sense. But, um, you know, if, if anyone's curious, and, and I know it's a controversial book because people cite it as being formulaic, I think it's really, I think it's been a great help to me uh, because, sorry, and it's Save the Cat by Blake Snyder. I like it because I read it after years of working in the Disney story department on both Mulan and Lilo and Stitch and coming to find the rhythms and the, the, the sort of the structure of the story very organically through trial and error. By the time it all felt right and it was ready to, to become the final film, it had fallen into the order that is described in that book because that book is, is an observation of hundreds of movies that are, that are deemed classics and very successful. And they do have common DNA because there's a certain way that human beings tell stories. And if they're missing some of these elements, it feels a little wrong and it's hard to put your finger on sometimes. But um, that's one thing the book helps to outline. It gives you questions that really put your idea to the test and, and helps you discover whether or not it has the material to really stand up. Yeah, I've read the book. And like you said, I've heard people saying, oh, it is too formulaic and it's something that you have to watch out for. But exactly as you're saying, it gives you an idea of the foundations of it and it helps you understand what's there. And then you can go on and break it and stuff that we've talked about with Roger about learning composition or lighting and it's the 180 degree rule. And if you know it, then you can go out there and kind of change it and create your own narrative, I think. And it's really important. Yeah, yeah, I think it, it's a great starting place, and uh, and then you end up with examples like No Country for Old Men, where there's this strange feeling, this disquieting feeling at the end, uh, you know, when the when the villain walks off, and you think, well, that's not the way it's supposed to end. <laughs> but it becomes the point of the story, you know. It becomes a very yeah. a very deliberate decision to veer away from convention, and that's what makes it so strong because it starts at a place of convention. So, Dean, we've. Over the last couple of episodes on animation, we've talked to Roger and his work in it. We've talked to the head of story, head of layout, and you being a director really want to understand how you're wrapping that all together. And you have all these different people, similar to live action, but they're working on different facets. So what kind of, what is your job and how do you help wrangle all that into one final picture? I think if I've learned anything over the, um, over the last decade and, and, probably add Lilo and Stitch to that as well. It's to surround yourself with the people who inspire you, who are the, the best that you can find and allow them to reign dominion over their aspect of the filmmaking. Kind of empower them to be as creative as, um, as they can be, to challenge ideas and, and to bring better ones into the fray. And that way uh, they feel invested and they feel really proud of it. And, um, and I feel super supported because I'm, I'm not put in a position where I suddenly have to um, guess or act like I'm an authority in all of these different areas of filmmaking. If, if there's anything that they entrust me with, it's story. And so I feel great pressure. And that's a full-time job in itself to make sure that we're spending our time 
and resources and, and talents on moments that will actually make it to the screen. Um, so I, I try to be, I try to go to every meeting, whether it's with uh, animators or uh, modelers or layout people, storyboard artists. I always try to come with that knowledge of the story and a strong point of view about what I would love to get across emotionally and and then also be open to ideas that challenge that. But um, mostly, mostly it's just finding people who are really, really great at what they do and empowering them to do it. And I think people that are very good at what they do and are very invested in what they're doing want to give you what you want, because that is why we all work. We're working to create the director's vision. I mean, that is the structure of, of a movie. So by making people invested, it gives them more incentive to do what you want. Yeah, in my, my early years in working for Don Bluth in Ireland, I, I worked on some pretty awful movies toward the end of their run. But the, the talent of the people working on the films was no less than you know, than, than the folks that I had worked with at Disney or DreamWorks. It's just that the some of the decisions being made from a story perspective up front mm-hmm. were, not, were not all that great. And I just remember putting nights and weekends in, into, into what I was, my art, you know, my contribution to these films and ultimately being embarrassed by the end result when the film <laughs> oh, came no. together. And I didn't even want to tell people that I'd worked on them. Oh, no. So I, I made a pact with myself at the time that if I ever get into a position where I'm calling shots, either as a director or a department head, that I want the crew to be really proud of what we've made together at the end, that we could sit in a theater at the rap party and with our loved ones and say, look, it was worth it. You know, those, those postponed vacations and late nights and weekends that were spent on this added up to something that's timeless, that's going to affect people and it's resonant and something to be proud of. So it's great if the movie makes a lot of money and it's well-received, but most importantly to me is that the, the crew was really happy, that they would want to get together again to make another movie. Thanks for listening. If you want more information and further discussion, check out the forums at www.rogerdeacons.com. Becoming a member is free, and you can ask follow-up questions there. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast for more new questions and topics. Also, check us out on Instagram at team.deacons. See you next time.